calling the message a, a symbol of our salvation, and indeed that's what it is. Uh, you'll find in your worship bulletin an outline, I pray that uh, you could use it and the Lord would speak to your heart and you could record some things that he's saying to you uh, through the preaching of his word today. As most of you are aware, at Hoffmantown we have two church ordinances and by saying we have an ordinance it means we do two things that the Lord ordained that the church should do. One is believer's baptism. We believe, as Jesus taught in Matthew 28, that we're to go and make disciples, teaching them to observe all things he's commanded us, and we're to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's called believer's baptism. It's the first step of obedience in the Christian faith. Those who believe were baptized. Secondly, the other ordinance is what we're participating in today, and that is communion, or as uh, we call it oftentimes, the Lord's Supper. And uh, I want to open God's Word with you today and see what it has to say out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So you find your Bible there and open it. We're going to read the text in just a moment. But here's what I want you to know. Ever since the inception of the church, taking communion for believers has been a part of the worship experience. It says in Acts 2.42, and they, this new church, the 3,000 who just believed, Simply, it says this, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in prayer, and in the breaking of bread. We read about the genesis, the, the origin of communion in the upper room in all the synoptic gospels when Jesus held up the cup and the unleavened bread, and he simply said, these represent me, my mission, what I've been called to do, and it's a continual it's continually given to the church that when we come together, that we would keep Jesus as a centrality of all we say and do. So out of 1 Corinthians 11 today, the Apostle Paul mentions some instructions here concerning taking the Lord's Supper to the church at Corinth and the expectations that he has for all of us in the church of 2019 as we come to the Lord's table. So please stand in honor of reading God's Word today. As we read, beginning in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it'll be on the screen. You follow along as I read. Now, I'm given these instructions. I do not praise you since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that th those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of the others. And one is hungry and one is drunk. What do you have, what, what you not have uh, houses to eat and drink in? Do you not have those houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I delivered unto you. That the Lord Jesus, same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Father, bless the preaching of your word today. Look and peer into each and every heart. See things that need to change within all of us. Help us to stay on the straight and narrow path that lead to life that only a few find. Help us be found faithful, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So in essence, what God's Word is telling us to participate in Holy Communion, we must be living our lives in a particular way in faithfulness to God and obedience to what He's called us to be and do. So it begins with what I'm calling a stern rebuke. As you know, the church at Corinth had been a troubled church. These first 10 chapters chronicle the carnality of this fledgling congregation. And the Apostle Paul addressed the problem uh, uh, in, in, in certainly uh, in mentioning sexual immorality, the worship of idols, lawsuits among church believers, factionism, greed and unrighteousness and self-righteousness. But if that wasn't enough, then he begins to address what I just read just a moment ago, and that is relative to misbehavior coming to the Lord's table. What they had done is taking that which was sacred and made it, had made it shameful. And he says, I cannot condemn, I cannot commend you for this. You're coming together to celebrate these symbols of salvation, yet you have made it a mockery and you have made it a disgrace. Now, their practice of what we uh, call the Lord's Supper was certainly different. They called uh, their gathering an agape feast, which was much more involved than simply passing these elements that we do today. They gathered for an evening meal, and it was really uh, pretty much a first century potluck dinner. People brought food, and they also, as you can tell, would bring alcohol, and it concluded then with uh, taking of the Lord's Supper. Paul is saying this, the behavior at this fellowship is detestable. It's not God-honoring. Matter of fact, you're disgracing his name. And he mentions three areas of misbehavior. So hear those with me today. The first problem he brought up was that of disunity. Paul says you come together in the ecclesia, the called out ones of God, but you're not together as you should be because there's divisions among you. Schemata is the Greek word. The English word uh, that we get from that word is schism. In other words, you're apart. You've been pulled apart, you're divided. And so this was the problem in the church. They couldn't agree upon a lot of things. And they spent their time together pretty much arguing, disputing. And there was strife and rivalry among the church. He mentions factions all the way back to chapter one that are ever present in the church. He says, now these factions have become not just disruptive, but they're destructive as well. And Paul uses some strong and harsh words of condemnation for those who were striving, who were causing this disunity. Listen, the reason the early church flourished, you remember this with me, what does it say in the early chapters of Acts? That they continued steadfastly together in one accord. In other words, they were like-minded, they were unified in purpose and mission, and there was unconditional love that abound. Listen, a church where there is conflict and division and bitterness and ongoing strife will rarely, if ever, do anything measurable or significant for the kingdom of God. But that has been a prevailing problem through churches throughout the years. And unfortunately, this church has had its share of it over the past months. 
So I ask myself this question, and I'm sharing it with you today. How can we do better? Three things came to mind. One, we surely have to crucify a critical spirit. Paul says, here's the problem with this conflict, this strife-ridden church. He speaks specifically to the church at Philippi. And he says this, do all things without grumbling or complaining. All-inclusive. There's some issues, but look, we're going to have to do all things without complaining and without grumbling towards each other. And he said, here's my solution in Galatians 2.20. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I tell you, would you do that with me? Let's crucify a critical spirit. Secondly, let's speak winsome words of encouragement. Let's speak words of blessing to each other. What's the Bible say? Colossians 4, 6, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you might know how to answer every man. Let's speak good words. Let's bless people. Let's be an encouragement. Thirdly and finally, remember forgiveness and love are the quintessential attributes of us as believers. Jesus the night before the crucifixion, would say this to his disciples, a new commandment I give unto you, a new commandment, and it's this, that you're to love one another. By this shall all men know you belong to me if you love one another. Let's let love be pervasive. Let's be forgiving people so we can move forward in a right and God-honoring way. There was a problem of disunity, but that wasn't all. There was also a problem of disrespect in verses 20 and 21. What started out as the practice of the Lord's Supper, a memorial to the Lord Jesus Christ, now he's saying has become a mockery. Because those who are poor who came to the agape feast, hoping to share in the blessings or the food of those who were well-to-do, they were being overlooked. The poor people were being ignored. They were being pushed back. They left hungry, both spiritually and physically, and they were treated inferior, and they were ostracized by the religious elite in the church. And the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on Calvary was indeed the catalyst for making all of us one. Instead, in the church, there's a, there was a socioeconomic line being drawn And there was, even in the church, the have and the have-nots. And you know what the problem was? And the problem always is. It's selfishness, isn't it? When people become self-indulgent, ostentatious, and prideful, suddenly those who don't measure up in their eyes are left isolated, forgotten about, and humiliated. Oh, listen to me today, people of God. The call for unity is found also in Philippians 2. That church at Philippi struggling for unity, but here was the word. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, esteem others better than yourself. Esteem others better than yourself. Look, not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And then let this attitude be in you that was also in Jesus Christ. Can I tell you today, everybody's important in the body of Christ. The, 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 The ground is level at the cross. And in Jesus Christ, there's no racial superiority. There's no financial superiority. There's no educational superiority because there's no superiority. Can we confess today in our own hearts, we're all wretched sinners. We're all in need of the grace and mercy of God. 
There was disrespect. There was disunity. And if it could get worse, it did. He said there's drunkenness as well. If there wasn't enough there in disrespect and disunity, Paul mentions another problem. That's, he said this is out of control. People are coming uh, to our agape love feast, and there's gluttony, and there's drunkenness, and there's shameful and sinister things going on. And these should not and must not be practiced when we should be practicing this holy ordinance. And so it's a call for righteousness and purity and holiness. Can I tell you, this will be the last straw for me. <laughs> Can you imagine coming to a worship experience and the key leaders in the church are intoxicated and stumbling around acting a fool? I, let, let me just say this in passing because it's time to say it. Look, while the Bible doesn't teach total abstinence, rest assured virtually every time that alcohol's mentioned, it's in a negative context. Proverbs 20, wine's a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and ever who is led astray by it is foolish. The clear injunction in a positive way in Ephesians 5.18, he says, do not be drunk with wine for that is debauchery. That's immorality, that's depravity. And then he says, but instead being drunk on wine, here's what God's people are to do. We're to be filled with the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit. That's what we need to be about. Pursuing God, refraining from worldly things, crying out in our hearts, Lord, keep me from shameful, sinful, and moral corruption. Those are the things that brought this stern rebuke to this first century church. Same things that are unacceptable in the 21st century church. You see, our God really is changeable. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He changes not. He's still a holy God. Let me move quickly. Not only a stern rebuke, but secondly, you see with me, he gives a simple remembrance. Jesus clearly and concisely tells us when we come to his table, it's about him. We're to focus on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, let me assure you, in first century for the Hebrews to remember something, it was more than simply recalling that that event happened. Instead, it was the idea of recapturing the reality and the significance of what it meant. You know that as well as me. The things they celebrate were the religious feasts, the Passover celebration, Pentecost. And Jesus surely knew that what could happen, even with this ordinance that we're practicing today, that if we're not careful, it can simply be another religious ritual, an empty observance and so he says, the emphasis has to be upon me. Remember me. So first, under A, let's talk about the misunderstanding. There's, there's grave misunderstanding about what we're taking here today. One, I want to confess with all clarity, this is simply, these elements are symbolic. They represent Jesus' body, his atoning blood, nothing more. This is not a sacrament. And I know sometimes you may have said we're taking the sacraments, wrong word. Don't use that word because with that word comes an inference of grace by taking these elements. As you know, the Roman Catholic Church practiced something different. They believe when the, the elements are blessed by the Pope or the priest, then suddenly they mystically become the body and blood of Christ. It's called transubstantiationism. The reason Mass is so critical 
for our, our, our Catholic friends is because they believe they've got to go to Mass. That's where they take Jesus in through taking of these elements. And so to stay in right relationship with God, it's taking what they call the sacraments and plus doing good works. Otherwise, their salvation's in jeopardy. There's another misunderstanding in that in the Anglican Church, the Church of England, the Episcopal Church. They believe something a little different, but it's first cousin to the Catholics, and that's this. Once that you take the elements into your, your, your body, they mystically become the body and blood of Jesus Christ within you. That's called consubstantiationism. Both of the practices, I believe, are misunderstandings of what Jesus is teaching here. These elements we hold in our hand and that we will take in just a moment are simply symbols to us. Symbols of what Christ has done for us and who he is. That's a misunderstanding. Now, under B, let's talk about a memorial. Verses 24 and 25. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. He says, we're making this a memorial, a memorial to me. We call it the Lord's Supper. It's a memorial to Jesus. It's not the church's supper. It's not the deacon's supper. It's not about a priest. It's not about a pope. It's not about a pastor. It's not even about parishioners. It's about Jesus. It's about remembering his deity, his deliverance, his destiny, his humanity, his mission, and certainly his purpose. And when Jesus shed his blood on Calvary, the blood that, the blood that flowed through his veins were the blood of God for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. And this is what keeps this ordinance worshipful. We worship Jesus. We reflect upon his work on Calvary, recalling the love of God that's been made manifest to sinners such as us. Which brings me to the third thing there. Not only the misunderstanding and the memorial, but the message. Look in verse 26. You'll see the message with clarity. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus said this memorial is about his death. What's the gospel about? For I delivered unto you that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He rose again the third day. We think about Jesus' death for sinners such as us. Most of you know who Ted Turner is, Turner Broadcasting fame. Actually, uh, probably remember about as well as being the husband of Jane Fonda as anything. But he's the largest individual landowner uh, in the United States. Curiously enough, his largest ranch is located right here in New Mexico. But he was a great proponent of secular humanism, and I suppose still is, although he's kind of faded a little bit. But he responded one time in USA Today, responding to the claims of Christianity. And here's what he said. I don't need anybody to die for me. Sure, I've had a few drinks and a few girlfriends. But if that's going to send me to hell, so be it. Man, I don't know about you, but I need somebody to die for me. I need someone to stand in my place. I need someone to take my sin and somehow, as only God can do it, vicariously die my death so I could live the life of Jesus Christ. I need someone to take my punishment and set me free. What's it say in Romans chapter 5? For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. 
For scarcely for a righteous man would some die, but poor adventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us. So it's not surprising, he said, here's the message we proclaim. It's relative to the death of Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. Some of you remember back in the 80s when this event happened, one of the worst snowstorms that ever hit our nation's capital, in Air Florida, Flight 90 crashed into the Potomac River. It seems like it was in January or February, but it was bitter cold, I know that much, as the plane landed in that icy river. David Usher, a helicopter pilot who assisted in the rescue effort, told about dropping the rescue rope down into the wreckage and several people then were rescued, clinging to life from the rope that he dropped. He shared this story. The first man who reached the rescue rope didn't take it. Instead, he looked around and passed it to another victim beside him. He said when he flew the helicopter back a second time, he did the same thing. He grabbed the rope and handed it to someone else, and they were saved. Five consecutive times the helicopter came back. He grabbed the rope only to hang to hand it off to someone else. He said he came back the sixth time, but the man who had helped the others were nowhere to be found. Those frigid waters had become his watery grave, and it cost him his life, but his courage and bravery had actually saved the life of five others. Well, that's an incredible thing to know and appreciate someone so selfless. But can I tell you, even that waxes dim to what Christ has done for us. As he paid our sin debt, as we mocked him all the way to Calvary, and there he shed his lifeblood to deliver us and set us free from being captive in our sin. So next we're told that we're to examine ourselves, And that's where we're concluding today. Not only a stern rebuke, a simple remembrance, but a sincere reflection. These last verses we read about a warning judgment that will come to those who act irreverently, that those who have taken this, this, uh, this communion disrespectfully and have partaken in an unworthy way. So first we need to understand we cannot make ourselves worthy on our own. But here's the admonition is for us to look within our lives, to rid, our, rid ourselves of sinful attitudes, behavior that we've been engaged in that have beset us, and ask the Lord to forgive us. So it begins under A with an examination. Here's, here's the text, verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord. So a man, a woman should examine themselves. Let a man examine himself. There is to be an honest, a sincere evaluation of what our lives. As we ask the probing questions, Lord, is there anything in my heart and in my life that needs to change? Is there unforgiveness toward others? Is there rebellion? There is a rebellious spirit in my life. Is there hatred, indifference, malice? Is there simply ingratitude in my heart? If there is, Lord, I know that's out of place. Forgive me. 
You know, I, listen, oftentimes we can go weeks, months, years, and some people a lifetime without really any self-examination of their own life. I know this is a, an older book, but it just comes to mind where um, uh, Patrick Morley wrote a book uh, 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 some years ago. Halftime, I'm not sure if Patrick's the... Uh, or Buford is the, the author of Halftime. I don't remember here, but here's the quote. Most people, he said, leave, live unexamined lives. Most people live lives that really go without honest evaluation. An unexamined life will not be a life worth living. God's word reminds us in Lamentations 340, let us examine our ways, let us test them, and then return to the Lord. How do we do that? How do we make a proper evaluation? How can we examine our own heart life in an objective and right way? I would suggest to you it begins always by looking upward, looking into the face of God. And only when we've looked at Him long enough to have a glimpse of His grace and mercy can we actually examine our own life rightly. Because as you know, we prefer this comparison reality. We can get a little leverage if we can find someone that's maybe in some kind of leadership position and we're, we're out, we're out to living our lives in some kind of holiness better than them and we feel justified in whatever we may be doing. I'm just telling you, a proper evaluation of ourselves is always contingent upon using the right standard. I share this personal experience with you because it's fitting. Most of you know I've had type 1 diabetes for 52 years now. I, I check my blood and still do about 12 times a day. I wear an insulin pump, so I've got to know my blood sugar because I calculated my insulin pump, and it calibrates how much insulin I need to be taking. Let me tell you what happened to me uh, some, some years ago now. Inadvertently, my glucometer, a setting got changed, and it was now in metric conversion. I thought I was having the best blood sugars of my life. I did. Every time I checked it, it was about 150, you know, 140, 100. And so I went to my endocrinologist. He checks my A1C. It was the worst A1C I've ever had. I want to, this has got nothing to do with what I'm preaching on. I went to the endocrinologist this week. My A1C was 6.1. Praise the Lord. 6.1, that is incredibly good for someone who has dealt with brittle diabetes most of their life. And I give God the glory. You know, he, he called me in uh, my brokenness, and he's used me in my brokenness, but I, I'm glad to give a good report. But here's what happened. So I'm using the wrong standard, and if it says 150 on my glucometer, you know what my blood sugar actually was? And I confirmed this this week with my endocrinologist. Multiply it times uh, 18. So what appeared to be 150 really wasn't 150, it was 270. No wonder my A1C was about 8.5 that time. I had the wrong standard. My life was confused, it was off. I didn't know better because I didn't have the right standard in place. Let me tell you, the world is going to hell in a handbasket because they're looking around and finding someone a little better than them so they can feel justified in their own bad behavior. But until you and I find the right place to examine and search our heart, we'll always be 
a little off. Would you say in your heart today with the psalmist, what Psalms 139 says, search me, O God, know my heart. Try me, know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That word examine means to approve something by testing it. We're to examine our life. We're to test our life. Test your lives and see. The Bible says first to see if you be of the faith. Test your lives and see that you're living your life in a right and faithful way. Under B, not only examination, but an explanation. Verse 29, for whoever eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that's the reason many are sick and among, that are among you, and many have even died. So Paul says, here's what's happened to those who have violated these expectations, who have presumptuously sinned and now face serious consequences. So while God doesn't eternally condemn believers for their misbehavior at the Lord's table, here's what he does say. Some have become sick and have died. Can I tell you this today? Sin makes people sick. You live your life in sin, I'm telling you, you're going to be one sick soul. You'll be sick physically and you'll be sick spiritually. And sometimes I will tell you, sin in your life makes everybody else sick. Because of your own poor behavior. Here it's the sinner who suffers. And yes, he said, some have even died. It does say in 1 John that there is a sin that leads to death. And it seems this irreverent transgression had made some sick and some have even died. So let's quit with this, the expectation. He says in verse 31, if we judge ourselves, we won't be judged. For we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned with the world. Here's what happens to us if we're sincere in our evaluation of ourselves. We keep God from judging us. If we rid ourselves of hypocrisy, of selfishness, of indifference towards God, if we confess our sins to Him, we avert His judgment. Isn't that what it says in Proverbs Chapter 28, he whoever covers his sin will not prosper, but the one who confesses and forsakes will find mercy. That's the expectation that God has for us. Not only that we look within our heart, but we judge ourselves in a right way so that we will not be judged for this offense by our Lord. Three quick things, then I'm going to ask the deacons to come. Here's what I want to ask you today. First this, are you walking with God? Are you walking with God? That's really synonymous with living your life full of the Holy Spirit of God. Amos said, how can two walk together unless they agree? And I'm asking you, if you're not in agreement with God and His expectation for us as believers then there's a broken fellowship. Live in obedience. Surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Walk in the Spirit. Walk with God. Secondly, are you worshiping God as you should? Do you worship in spirit and in truth? Are you faithfully meeting God in your life at the place of prayer each and every day as you begin to live that day for God? 
Are you staying humble before Him? Are you walking by faith? Are you living in the center of God's will? Declaring with your lips and your life that you, O Lord, are worthy. Is He worthy, congregation? He is worthy. The promise of God is this. If we draw near to Him, He'll draw near to us. Revelations 3.24, Behold, I stand at your heart's door and knock. If any man will hear my voice, I will open the door and I'll come into him and I'll sup with him and he with me. Then finally, are you willing to be used of God? Do you have an active faith? Are you serving the Lord in some capacity? Are you giving of yourself? Have you found a place of service? Or conversely, have you not really engaged in doing much of anything? I'm asking you today, the life of joy and fulfillment for the believer is this, and that we're on the give, not the take. That we're looking for opportunities to make a difference to those that we can have influence with, those whose lives we can touch in kindness, love, and mercy, and in service to them. I'm going to ask the deacons to come at this time as we prepare to take communion. As you continue in a worshipful attitude, we're going to give an invitation at the conclusion, but if you guys will make your way to the Lord's table. Let me quickly say, while these men are coming and taking the cloth off of these communion elements, this communion is open to everyone who know the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't have to be a member of this church, but you do have to be a part of the kingdom of God. You've been born again. You've put your faith in Jesus Christ. And maybe there's some things in your life that you know need to change. And we want to give you this time as we prepare to pass these elements, a time of getting your life right your life right with God through confession of sin. As you know, as we prepare to pass this bread, these little wafers of bread are unleavened. They're symbolized, don't they? The Lord Jesus Christ in his body. As we know in the scriptures, leaven is always synonymous with sin. So it's not surprising this is unleavened bread. Jesus was the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. For he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we could be made the righteousness of God in him. Let me pray a blessing on the bread. Then our deacons are going to serve these elements to you as you continue in a prayerful and worshipful attitude. Father, bless these elements. Help us to hold them as precious because they represent you. Thank you. It's a chance for us to hold what represents your body today. May we do so in a worshipful way. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
As you hold that communion wafer in your hand as our deacons continue to come to the Lord's table, we're reminded what we hold are great symbols of our Lord. This unleavened bread represents his perfect body. In John chapter 6, Jesus declared there, I am the living bread which comes down from heaven. He who eats of this bread will live forever. Now, as we pass this cup, we're reminded symbolically of the blood that Jesus shed for the remission of sins, his atoning work that set us free from our sin. Father, I pray you would bless the passing of this cup. Thank you for these men before me that serves it. I pray that we would do so in a right and reverent way. So, Lord, I pray as we hold this in our hand, we would experience once again the great grace that's been poured out on our life through our loving Savior. In his name I pray. Amen.
As we hold this cup, we're reminded of the Lord Jesus, the blood that he shed for us. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. All precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. In Ephesians 1, the Apostle Paul would write that great Christological passage in verse 7 saying, In Him, in Jesus, we have the redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sin, according to the riches of His grace. When Jesus instituted the supper, it says in Matthew's Gospels, they sang a hymn and went out into the night. In just a moment, we're going to sing an invitation hymn. We're going to go out into the day. But we want to give you an opportunity. Maybe you're here today and you'd like to make a public uh, commitment to Christ. Maybe God's spoken to your heart even through holding these elements. Once again, things that need to change in your heart. It would be a joy to pray with you and talk with you about what God would like to do. So let's stand to our feet now. David's going to lead us this invitation hymn. I'll be here to pray with you if you'd like to come forward. There'll be others here at the front with me. If you'd like to come, make a decision for Christ. You've never been born again, never trusted the Lord. What a wonderful day to give your heart to the Savior. We're not going to be here long. David, you lead us as we worship through this last song. Jesus, keep me near the cross. There a precious to being back with you. May the Lord be gracious to you as you serve in this week. Bye-bye.